0: Hello and welcome to the DocArena Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whittaker and in this fortnightly podcast series I talk to filmmakers about their documentaries both in terms of the subjects they choose and the way in which they fund, craft and distribute their work. In this episode I'm delighted to speak to the team behind the fascinating Netflix documentary series Sophie and Murder in West Cork including the director John Dower and the exec producers Suzanne Lavery and Academy Award winner Simon Chin. The series is now available to watch worldwide on Netflix. Produced by Lightbox, the award-winning company behind documentaries like Man on Wire and Searching for Sugarman, the series pieces together the events around the brutal murder of Sophie Toscan du Plantier in West Cork in 1996 and the 25-year search for justice for her family. First up, I interviewed John Dower, the director of the series. John, thanks a million for joining me. Just to start off with, this seems like the kind of project that probably started at producer level. Can you give me a sense of, of how you ended up being involved as director?
1: Well, me and the exec, one of the exec producers, Simon Chin, had made a film before, a very different sort of film called My Scientology Movie. And it was actually the um, the British um, journalist in that, Louis Theroux, who told me about this story. I knew nothing about it. Um and he told me about the podcast, obviously everyone knows about. And um, Simon also knew about it. And it was just one of those stories we got chatting about over the months and then years as these, you know, often these these things take longer to actually happen than they do to make. And um, it was something we were both keen on making. And I think, you know, the podcast was fantastic, but we sort of both felt that, understandably they've been seduced by the main suspect and we thought it would be it'd be interesting to to try and have a strong sense of the victim in this story Sophie and and her family and you know hear their side of the story so that was the motivation for starting it really
0: okay and, and for you then as a director what there are so many stories out there when you get involved in something like this, it's going to take up a couple of years of your life, probably on and off, or, or even more intensely than that. What makes you kind of want to jump in and say, this is the thing I want to do next?
1: I think it has to have, I mean, it, it feels, it always makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. This is, I guess, my first true crime um, film. And it always feels slightly uncomfortable talking about, oh, it's got a great story. I mean, it does. You know, there's no getting away from that. It is an extraordinary story that has been going on for 25 years. So it does need a strong story. And I like stories with an element of mystery and what happened. I and mean, the, the film I made before that was, was a film called, again, very different. It was called The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, about a, a guy that in, in the early 70s in America jumped out of a plane... With a load of money strapped to himself and and never got saw was never seen again um so that's an element that attracted me but I think ultimately it was it it was the strong sense of emotion that runs through this this story particularly with sophie's family and and sophie's family are they're more than just let's speak to the victim's family so it feels a bit different you know they are what they've done over the last twenty-five years is is kind of extraordinary. You know, they've not let this case fade away. And they've started an association, they've they've helped instigate legal proceedings in in in, in France. Now, when you get to see the series, whether you agree with whether that's right or not, or it should happen in that way, they're still what they've done is I think it's extraordinary and and they are a story in themselves but (laughs) as you hinted at Ross there are so many stories within this story and and I guess as a director that's ultimately you know what attracts you story story is everything
0: yeah and I have actually had a chance to preview the series it's three episodes that as you say, you know, it's it's a 25 year story with three episodes. And also there are elements of the story that I suppose happen very close to the crime itself that feel like there's an awful lot of detail in them. So how did you think about how you're going to tell the story? How am I going to approach that? What's going to be in which episode and where to put those things?
1: Man, that was, <laughs> I mean, I'd say in story wise, it's been one of the toughest, um, toughest, filmmaking um projects i've ever been you know i've been making documentaries for over 20 years i think this has been the the toughest because there is so much story and you know anyone who listened to the podcast you know that was 13 episodes but you know audio and visual have a very different grammar um and they could they could pack a lot more storytelling into their their series and they editorialize a lot themselves as presenters we were never going to do that So we sort of we were three episodes. We were four. We went back to three. I think three is a good is a good length for the for the series. But yeah, it was it was a challenge because essentially episode you know I'm not giving anything away from anyone hasn't seen it. But episode one is the story of the actual event and the sort of days and weeks afterwards. Episode two is essentially the story of one day and the prime suspect being first taken into custody and then episode three is the next 25 years which was that's the hardest thing I've ever had to to cut you know 25 years into into one hour so yeah it was it was certainly a challenge but you know a good one
0: and a responsibility as well because as you say the family are involved and you have people that have chosen you guys to tell their side of the story and and to kind of bring that to the public in a way I'm sure they want to keep it alive it must have felt like a great responsibility as well to kind of go, okay, this 25 years is going to fit into this one hour and there will be omissions, but we'll do our best to kind of tell it in a way that keeps people interested, but also gets across the fight that they've had.
1: Yeah, it was it was, it was, was an immense responsibility. I mean, I should just stress that we made this film with the family's blessing. We didn't make it for them, so there was there was never any question that they were to have editorial control. You know, they, and they, they were very gracious about that, given that they felt, you know, in a couple of previous tellings of this story, they hadn't felt that they, you know, they'd had a fair crack of the whip as it were, but they, you know, we built a trust with them, which is key when you're making documentaries. I spent a lot of time, (laughs) This is, I don't think anyone's going to be crying tears for me here, but I spent a lot of time in, Parisian restaurants with them uh, discussing this over glasses of, you know, pretty good French wine. But uh, yeah, but it it was building those relationships before we even turned on the camera with them, and they left us to it. You know, they 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 didn't see any cuts of the film until the final cut, um, which we showed them. But it, yeah, of course, it's you always. I mean, this is gonna I'm gonna sound a bit sort of pompous and po face now, but you know, whenever you make a documentary, you know, you kind of live it. And you do feel a responsibility to tell the story as best you can. But this did have added pressure because the, the the stakes are higher. You know, this is, you know, this is the, you know, the brutal, brutal murder of their daughter, their mother, their, you know, cousin, niece, sister. So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, I felt the pressure at times.
0: It was very interesting from an Irish person's point of view to watch it, you know, because we're so used to watching true crime. But this is the first time for an Irish audience seeing one of these take place in Ireland and seeing our landscape and seeing Irish accents and all these kinds of things. It'll be very different for, for an international audience who watch it. But I felt like you captured West Cork and that community very well. How did you when you started planning the film and what you wanted it to look like, what you wanted it to feel like, what were you thinking? what were your thoughts? how did you approach it? Well
1: that was another that was another sort of creative dilemma as a filmmaker you know again, as you say, true crime is is a tricky genre, and in all my films, I like a strong sense of place now i've you know I like location to be a character in itself because it it often is in the story. And in this one, oh, yeah. So, I mean, I'd obviously been to Ireland many times. I'd never been to West Cork. And it is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And so you start by going, well, you know, what lenses we use to capture this? It, it, it feels a little inconsequential, given the awful event that happened here. But, you know, as ever, and again, I'll sound a bit cornball, but it, it it's true, you, you should always be motivated by the story. And Sophie took refuge in this beautiful part of the world to escape, you know, her celebrity lifestyle in Paris. And also, you know, her diaries, she constantly writes about the wild beauty of Tormor and Skull and, and West Cork. So you know we we set out to capture that it was ultimately you know motivated by the story and i you know i, I hope it doesn't feel like you know just a picture postcard tourist advert
0: and there's a stillness to it you know there's no sweeping drone shots over coastlines and so on and so forth and in a way to me that makes me feel like it's of its time to a certain degree in that it, you aren't taking the tools some of the two tu- of course you're taking many of the tools we have now but it doesn't feel like you're going in and just throwing the kitchen sink at it you know uh, i thought that was interesting
1: right well i'll have to tell you here's one thing about me as a filmmaker ross i hate drones i hate them i just it's a personal thing i just i find them I think it's just such a lazy way of filmmaking because you're not the shots don't really have any beginning or any end it's just like mopping up it's it's almost like CCTV they're not they're not directed they look pretty but I find after a few seconds you just switch off to them and every documentary now starts with a bloody drone shot it's like I've always tried to not have them I had to relent in my last film the mystery of DB Cooper But again, it was sort of motivated by the story because it's about a guy jumping out of a plane over a forest. So, you know, a drone shot is fair dues, I think, in that. But generally, I hate drone shots. They're very... I can see they're very seductive. But I... Yeah, I just find them... Personally, I'm sure I'll get a massive kicking from the film community. I just find it lazy filmmaking. It's a sort of default, oh, what do we do now? Oh, I don't know, let's just whack some drone footage in. Anyway, but you're right. and also. It would have, it you know this is mid nineties you know rural island you know <laughs> you know you're spot on it 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 would not feel it would feel strange
0: if you look back through your career thriller Manila in my Scientology movie with Louis through mystery of D.B. Cooper recently on Storyville many many documentaries over the course of twenty years but great variety in there what I suppose have you or what do you bring to each of your films that. That is that is you.
1: No drone shots. <laughs> um I, that's a good oh, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean yeah, I don't want to start sort of blowing my proverbial director's trumpet. I mean I guess I, I'm not I have to say I'm not brilliant at coming up with my own ideas for films. I come up with lots of ideas and think that won't be longer than ten minutes. Um so I discard them. I think I'm quite good at taking stories that people come to me and taking, bringing a particular slant. I love ensemble filmmaking in that I love a lot of characters in my films. I don't like to sit one character down in a studio and do long, long, long interviews. I like a lot of characters because I think stories are complicated. People are complicated. And I think the only way to get to that complication is to interview as many people as possible and get their take on, on that one event. Um, i think i'm you know pretty good at building relate I, th- I think as i hinted at earlier i think one of the key things with documentaries is is building relationships with your contributors it sounds like such an easy thing to say but so many people don't do it i mean i you know if when people ask me for advice you've been doing this for 20 years what's your one piece of advice is the first time you go in and meet someone don't take the camera out of the bag immediately. You know, don't turn it on. Sit with them for several hours beforehand. You know, I made a film about the British cyclist Bradley Wiggins and um, quite an awkward, difficult character initially, like a lot of us are. And um, I deliberately spent a day with him and didn't film anything. Now, you have that moment, you're going, oh, that was a great thing he said. If only I had the camera on. But... Believe me, you will ultimately, when you come to turn the camera on, you'll get so much better stuff because you've done that, you've done that sort of emotional work in advance. And if you don't do that, you, you won't get as much out of people. There's just, there's, I just see this tendency to just turn on the camera and film everything. Again, it's like, that's not directing, that's CCTV, that's surveillance. You know, it's not... I think I think that's probably my strongest asset on a documentary is that I'm, you know, I'm pretty good at building the relationships with the characters in front of the, who eventually go in front of the camera.
0: Uh, good stuff. It's it's an interesting one. That, I mean, I I actually I won't start giving my opinion on stuff. <laughs> the. Uh yeah no I won't okay so yeah and feel free you know no no well I don't take well, up too much of your time but it, it's one of those uh, yeah, ones where I've
1: got time I've got time
0: the difficulty can, sometimes can be the, I agree with you completely the other side of that is that you need people to become used to the camera and so I can sometimes think that people overdo the talking not I mean beyond the first couple of meetings they can be almost taught to- and then they bring the camera out and it changes the room do you know that thing can happen as well
1: yeah no no that's a that, that's a fair point but I think in your conversations with the people in advance you you have to prepare for them and that and say look it you know if someone's afraid if someone's nervous about going in front of the camera that's not going to change at all that's always going to happen and it's it it's a way of saying to them make the connection with me forget that and forget the guy standing behind it operating it you're talking to me you know which is again I don't another you know, again, this is all very personal, really personal. Um, but, you know, I don't like those interviews where people talk down the lens. You know, I, I, they're supposed to be more intimate. And weirdly, I find them strangely more distancing. But again, that's another, you know, lots of great films have been made that way. And there are lots of good films with drone shots. I just hate drone shots.
0: Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing. And it's, it kind of comes to another part of it is that I think in your films, it's clear that you are the director that there is somebody here telling this story and you're not trying to distance yourself from that. Is that a very conscious choice?
1: Definitely. Listen, I'm not, I'm not Nick Broomfield. I'm not going to appear in front of the camera. You know, I'm not Jim Sheridan. You know, I'm not going to be um, walking and narrating my, my thoughts on the story. But I do think it's important for a viewer to know there's somebody behind this camera Questioning that there's somebody making these choices, you know, there is, you know, in a couple of interviews I've done for the, the this um, series on Sophie, you know, a couple of people have said, well, you know, as the film progresses, you know, it's you don't feel very objective or balanced, and it's like this idea that documentaries are somehow objective and balanced is absolute nonsense. I mean, it just it just is every story takes a point of view. You tell a story to your friend in a pub, you you give it a point of view. And it, it's unavoidable. You can make your stories more nuanced and um, show the complication in the story. I mean, we don't end up this film, this series by saying, you know, the prime suspect is guilty. But here are some things and some questions he hasn't answered, which may suggest... You know, it might put a bit a little bit of doubt into your mind. So but yeah, I think it is important that for me, again, this is a personal thing, but there is a sense of who is there is a sense of somebody behind the camera making this, making decisions. And it's not just me, it's my whole team, you know, my producer Sarah Lambert, exec producer Simon Chin and Suzanne Lavery. You know, those those are sort of quite often team decisions.
0: Just as a final question, then, you started as a conversation with Louis, you know, and with Simon Chin. How you feel, ab- I know it's such a strange question, how you feel about the story now, having lived it, you know, over a couple of years?
1: Oh, that's actually a really good question because normally on a dot, and again, it's really hokey, you live it, but you do live it because you become obsessed. And it's the only way to make a good one is that you have to, you have those moments where you wake up in the middle of the night and go, hang on a minute, we need to speak to that person or what they said there, I don't quite get that. You know, so you have those moments. Uh, listen, again, I'm not complaining. It's an absolute privilege to do it. I love it. But normally with a film, you go through this cycle of absolutely living it and then you finish and then there's that sort of strange empty feeling and then it's like, oh, OK. And then you go on to the next one. I mean, you do keep in contact You know, I mean, I never try and make friends with the people in my film because then you don't get the best interviews out of them. But, you know, some of the characters you keep in contact with, I'm still in contact with a couple of people in the D.B. Cooper film. But this one has been different. This one, as the rest of the production team will attend, I cannot shake it. I cannot shake it. And there is part of me that somehow thinks it's still not finished. I mean it's still not finished as a story, everyone knows that. But for me personally, I don't know, it sounds I can't it's like a gut thing. This I'm somehow coming back to this in some shape or form. Some whether that be something written or a shorter film. Listen, I've got no illusions. Netflix aren't gonna commission another three part series from me on this story, but I feel there's 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 things left unsaid which I'd like to you know, yeah, I'm starting to sound a bit sort of, a bit like Diane the psychic in our film now, a bit, a bit sort of spiritual. But I, I, honestly feel that this one isn't over.
0: Well, that's a great note to end on, John. Thanks a million for talking to me.
1: No problems. Thank you.
0: Next, I spoke to Suzanne Lavery of Lightbox, who is an exec producer. On the series, hi, Suzanne, Thanks for joining me. From a production point of view, could you talk a little bit about how you approach the series? You're in the middle of a pandemic, and while you're Irish, you're based in London and with a director based in the UK and a story to be filmed in West Cork and France. How do you approach that from a production point of view?
2: Yeah, well, we actually started um gloriously pre-pandemic. so, we had no idea of what was what was coming, um. So I mean, we're we're very well used to producing international material from the London office, and you know, our teams generally will you know go off wherever the story takes them. Um. So we had Sarah from Cork, um, who was our amazing producer, Sarah Lambert, um, John Dower, who is English but actually half Scottish, so that was his little bit of Celt in the, in the production. And then uh, Simon, Simon is a Londoner and I'm from Northern Ireland. So, um, so yeah, we, we were a sort of a team that sort of came from all over. Um, Actually our, our research I think was half Belgian as well. So we had a little bit of the French influence there as well. You
0: know, normally I suppose when you enter into these series, it's kind of an interesting one for us thinking about it now in terms of an Irish story or a story that people from Ireland would have been familiar with for years. And now it's becoming an international story. And of course, there's a very large French element to this. When you're embarking on these international stories, how do you think about the balance? Because maybe for us in Ireland, when we're watching a story based in the States or we're watching a story based in, in another country, we don't really think about this. But suddenly, this is a story that we all know very well. I'm kind of curious to know, how do you think about it having an identity that is both international, but also part of the place that it came from?
2: yeah well I mean there there are a few levels to that question um because it's you know arguably it's it's just as much of a French story as it is an Irish story because you know Sophie's French and we did so much filming in France with her family and it's you know it's obviously a huge case over there, but intrinsically the West Cork landscape was what drew Sophie to the place where she met her death um and the whole sort of atmosphere there and the vibrant community there um that is you know it, it it's a cliche to say but but we we really kind of wanted West Cork in itself to almost be a character in the film and to really sort of bring the viewer there and kind of let them experience what drew Sophie there um so, yeah, so it so that was that was really important to us we you know we didn't want to approach the landscape in a cliched way. you know John had a a rule where he didn't want any drone shots whatsoever, you know, it's sort of easy to just sort of you know hoover up the beautiful landscape with drone shots, but um you'll see he's sort of composed his shots you know sort of static and very beautifully, and just really let us kind of stand there and take in the beauty of the landscape um but in terms of bringing a sort of an a well known irish story to a wider audience i think that's one of the things that really excited us because you know we know for sure how how well known the story is in ireland but you know even in the uk it's not that widely known at all um and you know in the other sort of hundreds of countries where where we'll drop on netflix you know it's it's it, we're genuinely bringing this sort of very particular Irish and French sort of European flavour to a, to a global audience, which is really exciting and quite daunting at the same time. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be an interesting feeling when it finally goes to air.
0: Uh, I suppose I'd, I'd like to get uh, trying to get a handle on then access. You know, at, mm-hmm. at what point with a story like this do you address the access? You know, obviously, Lightbox of you know one of the biggest reputations in the world for documentary making can you go to a broadcaster or to a streamer and say this is a great story what do you think we're going to look at getting access or uh, how does that process work when you're having those kind of high-level conversations
2: yeah well I mean it's all about the access you know every time you can't you can't make a film or a series like this if if people won't share their experiences with you um so you know we can certainly pitch projects and say you know we think we're going to get access but until you actually do it's it's a bit of a leap of faith um and that you know for 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 us the really key point was when we um met frederick gazo um, who was the associate producer um, on the film, who is also Sophie's cousin and who features in the film and speaks very beautifully about her. Um, and when Frederick came on board, bringing the family with him and, and sort of entrusting the story to us, that kind of opened up access Obviously, to to the French side of proceedings, but also people in West Cork were much more open to talking to us when they knew that we had the family's blessing, because um, I think there's a real hesitancy in people in in that community to be seen to be sort of sensationalizing the story or you know sort of drawing attention to themselves by talking about the story. You know, I think I think people are you know deeply respectful of of Sophie um and it was really important to a lot of people that you know we Sarah and John particularly you know spoke to people for months on end before some individuals you know sort of agreed to to come on camera so it's you know it's it's a long painstaking process and and we just have to be patient and um kind of help people trust us and and assure them that you know we've only got the best of intentions and that. We're not going to make them look stupid or, or trick them into saying something they don't want to say or sensationalize the story. So, you know, it is really, it's really it's an exercise in trust, you know, for the contributors and for the commissioners that that we can deliver.
0: When you're getting into the storytelling, then, you know, there's always a balance between telling a story that people are going to want to watch and ensuring that you're being responsible trying to do both Mm -hmm. of those things at the same time when you're going through the production process meetings uh i'm sure screenings and so on how big a part of the conversation is that and do you have any kind of methodology for addressing that
2: we keep each other in check and we all you know we have quite a strong moral compass you know i mean i think as as documentary makers, you're only as good as your last project and and the last access. And if you burn someone, then, you know, that's out there in the world for people to see. So, um, you know, we're we're always respectful to people and always sort of try to help people speak their own truths, you know, in, in as sort of as genuine a way as possible. So, you know, I think... In terms of you know what do we put on screen and what do we leave out. Um, you know, sure we, we have a point of view, we kind of go into it with an open mind and try to be objective, but of course we have, you know, our, our views are changed as we sort of research and, and and delve deeper into the story. Um so yeah, so it, it's just it's just being really rigorous actually and and sort of thinking about the repercussions of what are, are said and, and how you present things. Um, and also, you know, clearly we have a, a really rigorous compliance process, which was particularly fun on this project with, you know, sort of Irish law, French law, US law, UK law. You know, we we um, talked a lot to our lawyers about, you know, what, what should go in and what could go in and what perhaps we should leave out. <laughs> so.
0: And you're talking about a story that has... I suppose, lived in, in the world, lived in people's minds for 25 years. You're telling it in three one-hour episodes. What kind of challenge did you find that to be?
2: Uh, big one. <laughs> it was, um, I mean, that was, that's probably a, where most of our sort of brain power went and, and most of our, you know, sort of kind of agonizing in, you know, how, how to carve this story up you know um and you know that you have to you know obviously you have to set the scene in the first episode um, but that you know the first episode is, is basically you know sort of in in the days around sophie's death and so it's, it's actually a very very short space of time um, the second episode is effectively the arrest of of the main suspect so that's, again, a very, very short, intense space of time. Um, and then the the third episode, we had to sort of try and dutifully tell everything else that happened in the next 25 years, um, which obviously, you know, involved some sort of hard choices. And because it's such a kind of labyrinthine case, it, it's, you know, how do we have to tell every single beat of the story, every single... Um, thing that happened every single um, hearing, you know, or do, you know, can we sort of leave some things out for the sake of storytelling so that it's it's not just a, a shopping list. So finding the balance in that to make sure that we didn't leave out anything important was 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 really key as well.
0: Just as a final question, I'm with my kind of Irish hat on, mm-hmm. this is one of very few stories that's actually been told on Netflix um, or in an international context like this, you know, Netflix obviously aren't Netflix obviously aren't the only um international kind of broadcaster or streamer now. Does it do you think that it may open the doors for for looking to Ireland for more stories? I know that's a really kind of local question, a parochial question, but um we do have interesting stories here and it, it does feel sometimes like not a lot of them are getting the international attention that maybe they could.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I, I hope that this proves that an Irish story can be appealing to, to international audience. I mean, I have (laughs) pitched many Irish stories over my, over my years as a producer, you know, and it is, you know, it can be difficult to get things away. Um, But, you know, I, I think, I think there's a, a real richness in stories from Ireland and I, you know, I would love to work on more Irish stories. So, I hope this will sort of open the floodgates. It's when you find the kind of the universal in the in the specific, isn't it? I think that's that's the sweet spot. So it becomes not so much an Irish story, but just a story that is so grippingly human that it's you can't deny it.
0: Finally, I spoke to exec producer Simon Chin. Who previously won Academy Awards for his documentaries *Man on Wire* and *Searching for Sugar Man*? Simon, thanks a so million for joining me. I suppose the first question is, how did you first come across the story and, and decide it was something you want to pursue? Because presumably, quite a number of stories and books and so on come across your desk.
3: A lot, a lot do come across my desk. You know, I, I mean, obviously, this was a story that was very, very well known in Ireland and to some degree well known in France it was sort of li- little known in Eng- in England or the UK uh, or rather Great Britain shall we say um but uh i mean look I, I mean, a lot of people listen to the podcast um and that's i guess my first interaction with it um and yeah it was just a, a very striking story uh, and we started to sort of pursue it from that point and Quite at some point thereafter, we had the very good fortune, I guess, of sort of connecting with Frederick Gazzo, who is Sophie's cousin, um, via a French producer who at that time was sort of planning to do a documentary, uh, a French documentary. But I think they had, they had heard that we were sort of talking to Netflix uh, and, and wondered whether there may be some sort of scope to collaborate. So we sort of started talking to the family at that point, I went down to Paris, and I met them. And, you know, just felt it felt very encouraging from the minute I met them, I think there was sort of just a kind of ease, and a kind of natural mutual, I think, trust, um, probably based on the fact that, you know, they, I think they felt that you know, I think they knew there were other pieces being made and they were a bit concerned about those and where they would what you know what those what those pieces might conclude um i mean look i you know i i, I from the get-go with them i said that we can't obviously they never asked for any sort of editorial approval um in fact quite the reverse they said we totally understand that that, that you have to kind of come at this uh, journalistically to do a balanced piece and you will draw your own conclusions at the end and whatever those conclusions are are fine with us. The only request that we would make of you is that, well, I think there were two actually. There was one that we want, we very much want this piece to kind of put Sophie at the centre of the story, which they had clearly felt other pieces today hadn't done or hadn't done to the the extent that, that that they wanted. Um, and I guess the other thing was that they were very concerned about, you know, showing Sophie's dead body, um, and that is something that was very easy. Those two assurances were very easy to make, I have to say, because I think it was definitely sort of chimed with our instincts on both counts. I think I think we were very keen to do something that didn't sort of follow the sort of well-worn true crime trope of, of sort of objectifying the female victim um in fact you know i think think you know netflix has come in for a little bit of criticism itself over the years for sort of the slightly kind of more shall we say salacious end of the true true crime uh sort of approach and i think we wanted very much wanted this to be a sort of a little bit of a corrective to that as well so you know if it, it felt that felt in a weird way, it felt like a fresh approach. It shouldn't, but it, but it, but it, but it is, I guess.
0: And I imagine that Netflix's own opinions on the true crime genre have evolved over time as well. That they don't want every piece to be the same, too. So, with them, was that an easy conversation to have? We're going to do this a little bit differently.
3: Yeah. Listen, the Netflix uh, commissioner, Kate Townsend um had been aware of this story for many years in fact that's the other thing to say she she had she had in fact very early on when she was at the BBC sort of some five years before talking to us had been talking to Jim Sheridan about his his project and that that project I think at that time had sort of as I understand it had struggled to kind of get financing uh and had, had, had sort of you, you know sort of gone a bit dormant um so that was her kind of so she was well aware of the story so when we kind of started talking to her about it she was actually immediately interested and I think equally not not just given her kind of pre-existing interest I think she felt that somehow for Netflix not just because of the sort of desire to sort of put Sophie at the center of it but that was a kind of important factor but the kind of just that this this offered a different flavour um, in, in lots of ways uh, to the kind of other true crime shows and I, th- I think it's it's fair that Netflix have done, I think it's also fair to say that you know, ne- Netflix have evolved a strategy where they're sort of increasingly become interested in what they call local content uh, local to the extent that this is I guess both in some ways British, I- Irish and French uh, uh, both territories that they're sort of deeply uh invested in at this point um so i think they were kind of excited about that aspect of it but you know for them you know yeah it's got to be local but some in some sense tr- transcend being local you know the something that has the potential to be watched by a global audience and i think you know this is just such a an extraordinary story and i think there's a huge built-in audience, you know, among the sort of those on who, who, who will regularly go to the, the true crime offerings on Netflix. So I think for all those reasons, Netflix were, were always excited about this project.
0: I'm interested in the path that you as an exec producer take through a project from the beginning to the end. So at what point do you start looking at the director? And, you know, you come across a story, maybe you sometimes come across that story in conjunction with a director. Sometimes maybe you get the source content first and then start thinking about who you want to do that. Can you talk a little bit about that process and, and trying to figure out who is the right fit for something like this, say, or another project?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I have a lot of director relationships. So to some degree, I, I, I'm, I'm always thinking about those relationships and, you know, the kind of pool of directors that I I, I've worked with and you know the, the different kind of pros and cons that you you know I, I, in any director you know every director sort of approaches something differently uh, has a different sort of sensibility kind of offers the possibility of a particular tone so it's it's just the kind of that kind of experience of having worked with people. you know or, or I'm always also looking for new people to work with so but but I guess on this one I sort of thought of John Dower quite 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 instinctively, quite quickly. And I sort of, i mentioned it to him and I know he had been fascinated by the story. He'd also listened to podcasts. So he was fascinated by the story, fascinated by the character of Ian Bailey, uh, fascinated by lots of aspects of the story. But I, I felt, I guess I felt that John, you know, you know, I've worked with John on a film called My Scientology Movie, which couldn't in some ways be more different, but um that film has a sort of, you know, it sort of leans into the sort of absurdity that's sort of inherent in the story. And without wishing to sound trite, um, this story has that too. I mean, it's got, there's something utterly absurd about aspects of it. Um, and I thought John would sort of get that, you know, not 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 as a way of, I mean, you know, there, there were aspects of my Scientology that were sort of almost kind of comedic you know or, or, or where we were sort of um you know bringing out I guess the kind of inherent comedy in the story look this isn't this is not comedic but there's definitely sort of there's, there's stuff in there that just just is is somewhat surreal um the way it unfolds and I think I think John sort of navigated that line I think quite well, but but also he's a very sensitive filmmaker and he's someone who, you know, who's utterly sort of tenacious when it comes to access. Um, and I thought, I felt actually, you know, having someone on the ground, you know, it was not just him, him and Sarah Lambert, who's the producer who I had work, worked with before. I mean, actually, as, as a sort of pair, they're incredibly plausible, um, trustworthy, um they, they play a straight bat, you know, they've got a lot of experience in sort of building trust on the ground with people who might be naturally suspicious. So I actually felt that though that that as a as a pair, they would be pretty um formidable I would say and you know it, it, ultimately we needed that because we had lots of challenges in that in that regard
0: yeah and I think with John you have someone that seems to have a real human touch you wouldn't be kind of disconnected from the story and that seemed to fit really well in with the community there judging by watching it you mm. know what I mean and, and even hearing his interaction with them which was kept in the edit at times you get a sense of there's a person here that has uh, an approach to this and it's quite yeah, yeah. human and, and you get that sense which
3: it, yeah yeah that's actually a really good way of putting it I think John does sort of combine the journalistic with the the very human and you know he, he's you know he's he, he's he a he's got a beating heart and he lives and breathes the projects that he does I mean he really does and um but you you know has the the sort of when to to of of step outside and sort of look at things dispassionately. So he is that kind of combination. So we were never looking for someone to do a purely a kind of piece of reportage um, at all.
0: You know, it's funny, I've heard you tell the story of getting access for making Man and Wire and Philippe Petit and being there at the exact right moment because you knew he cared so much about timekeeping and all those kinds of things. And I imagine a young producer with all these hopes and dreams and now many years later and many films later, you're in a completely different position starting from that point now you probably have as i've mentioned earlier many many stories that are coming at you how do you kind of figure out particularly in this more globalized documentary landscape where netflix are looking for things that over 100 million people want to watch what is the right thing to choose because i think for maybe directors producers who might listen to this they might you know they're coming across stories they're going to invest themselves in things what are the key things i think that you need to kind of figure out when you're going to make that investment
3: yeah it's really it's a really difficult question and, and 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 you know i get it right sometimes and i get it wrong a lot so you know i mean obviously our business is is one where you know it, 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 it you know i don't want to say it's it's a numbers game because it that's that that doesn't that doesn't explain the process very well but you know you do have to have a lot of things out in the world i mean i i i would say that you know. One's own personal kind of passion and connection to a story is is sort of a must, really. But so that that I think is a given. I think if you don't feel passionate about it, you're not convinced or or you don't have conviction when sort of pitching it, you know, at some basic level, you're not going to be able to sell it. So that that I think is a sort of inherent part of the process. But then sort of threading the needle a bit between you know, a little bit what, what the market is going to respond to. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that this, by the way, is, is necessarily a story that was a sort of slam dunk for the marketplace. I just knew that Netflix and particularly Kate actually had a connection to the story and, and, for, and that for their own reasons, Netflix wanted to, wanted to do it. Uh, and this story obviously has an extraordinary twisty narrative and it's surprising in all sorts of ways, and it's got some extraordinary characters um so it, it kind of ticks those boxes for us you know it's a sort of amazing narrative but but something where you can really sort of explore just un very unusual and surprising characters so that for me ticks those boxes but but I suppose that may not be enough in some in some ways it's also what is the thing about a story that sort of connects it to the zeitgeist you know. And I think that's a huge one. So you know, and that's that's about you know what what what's gonna uh, enable a, an audience to come to it, you know, for for a project, a story to find an audience. And I think with this one, actually, well, obviously the true crime genre is just just a kind of very popular genre. But notwithstanding that, I mean, there is something about the story that for me kind of felt like it kind of fitted into. The sort of discussion and debate and, and, and sort of the, a, a, around the European question, you know, sort of this is a kind of story where some of those some, in some kind of subtle way, some of those ideas about nas- nationalism and nationality and cultural difference and, and and institutional differences are being played out in this very particular setting. You know, this is an extraordinarily beautiful part Ireland, where nothing bad is supposed to happen, nothing bad had happened for maybe over a hundred years, and something terrible happens, and it completely shakes up the community, and then all of these kind of fault lines that that you know to do with kind of worlds colliding and characters colliding and people's prejudices kind of open up, and I felt actually that's something there was something really extraordinary about that 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 may not be it's not explicit but it kind of hopefully audiences will come and it's kind of that will that will resonate with them in that way
0: yeah it's it's always a question that i i hear people talking about is is this story international you know and and for all the reasons that you say you can start opening up and thinking oh well i can see why those make sense. But is that something that you think of? You know, do you think like, okay, is this something that somebody in Cape Town or Sydney or Beijing or Los Angeles is going to want to watch when you're thinking about a story? Because obviously we're always looking for the universal in the local, but sometimes it's tipping the balance between is it too local without being universal enough? You know, you know, you know
3: weirdly, I, I think of it in terms of the distribution model of Netflix. And I think actually, you know, There are stories that I might not touch, but somehow or other, because I don't feel they have that sort of broad international potential, but somehow or other on the Netflix platform, the possibilities are just entirely different. I did a film with a director who works at my company, Lightbox, Ed Ed Perkins, called Tell Me Who I Am, which is another extraordinary, just really surprising, twisty story about these identical twins one of whom loses their memory after an accident and the other twin sort of tries to kind of reintegrate him into the world provide him with his quote memory but ultimately omits to tell him some to telling him something very critical about their past that was that's very very troubling and I'm not going to go further because I'd like your viewers to watch it uh, your listeners to watch it but um it's on Netflix. Uh, that you know that that was a project that that had probably quite niche commercial potential because you know it's a small story. It's it's in some ways it's 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 British. It's it's dark, but it is just an incredible story with huge reversals. And in this director's hands, I knew could be incredibly cinematic. And actually, you stick that that film on Netflix, and it gets ten million maybe more viewers. I mean, it's still up there, you know, it's still on the kind of most popular quite regularly, well, certainly on my homepage. Um, but, um, you know, I don't think that film, you know, as a as a theatrical release or, or as a sort of BBC doc, I don't think it does get a massive audience. But I think on Netflix, it does have that potential. And I, th- I think the same with this. It is an extraordinary sort of distribution model, Netflix. And I think, you know, you, know, you hear regularly about, about series that you, you, know, you wouldn't imagine on, in, in, in the hands of another distribution platform doing well, just, just kind of doing extraordinary um, numbers in terms of audience.
0: Amazing. And coming back to Sophie's series and also the process that you go through, when you come to the end of making something, as you often do, you have made a film or a series and in the world of documentary, you are then taking this person's story to the world. How mm. do you deal with that process as a producer? Do you often show the people does it depend on the agreements that you've made and and just manage, I suppose, that process and expectations of real people's lives going yeah. out onto a platform, as you mentioned, like Netflix that has so many viewers?
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's always a difficult one, but it's always really important to us to make sure that that you know the appropriate people see the film um, or the series before it goes out. And you know, I guess sort of from a kind of journalistic point of view, that essentially, you know, if we've made or if the film if the film or series has made, you know, specific allegations that that, that the people on the other end of those allegations have had the right to reply or that they've, you know, they've been asked the questions and they've been been given the platform, the appropriate platform to reply. So all of those sort of journalistic considerations are absolutely always fundamental, not just for ethical reasons, but for legal reasons. So, you know, obviously these these, these projects get very, very heavily lawyered and appropriately so. And I think actually in, in, in most cases, weirdly that actually helps make them better because we have to be very very mindful about things like balance um and i think you know we're we're certainly not the kinds of program makers that are sort of drawn to sort of very one-sided uncomplicated approaches to story you know so if we can if we can lean into sort of Ambiguity and complexity you know I, we tend to think that makes for a richer and more compelling watch um but in terms of actually the sort of with this one you know I guess our sort of key consideration was to kind of ensure that that Sophie's family felt comfortable with what we were doing at every turn um I mean we you know we were actually working with Frederick Gazo as the family's representative who himself is an associate producer on the series um and you know frederick was very careful about his role so you know there was there was he was you know very light touch in terms of giving notes i mean he gave he gave some notes on 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 rough cuts um and then but but they were very they were never in any sense kind of heavy or or, or interfering i think he was kind of quite mindful of of his role as both an associate producer and and a member of Sophie's family and as someone who's close to Sophie um but look it was important to us that we screened the the series to the the family and and took all their their views on board and we 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 did that quite recently and and we had a kind of zoom with all of them and you know there were aspects of it you know that some were happy happier than others and and you know I wouldn't say you know they were happy with abs. They were all happy with absolutely everything, and that's never the goal, by the way. Um, I certainly remember when we did our feature doc about Whitney Houston with Kevin McDonald directing. You know, we showed that to Pat Houston, Whitney's sister-in-law, who sort of oversees the estate, and you know, it wasn't an entirely comfortable screening. You know, there were aspects, certainly aspects of that film that were really uncomfortable viewing for for Whitney's family i mean that Whitney's mum actually really really took against the film um partly because it made allegations about um you know about uh, Whitney um being abused as a, as a child um that you know at the hands of um uh, her aunt uh and you know um Whitney's mother vehemently, strenuously denies that it took place. Um, we fa- feel fairly, very certain that it did. We, we we had it corroborated from a number of different sources. Um, so yeah, I mean these things are never necessarily about satisfying your subjects, you know, but but they are definitely about listening and about being sensitive and about. Ensuring that you're not doing anything gratuitous that isn't sort of strongly in the kind of, I guess, the public interest, you know, to bring out. Um, so, yeah, those, those become difficult considerations sometimes, I would say.
0: Okay, Simon, that's all my questions for you. Thanks Amin so for joining me. Really appreciate the time and uh, best of luck with it.
3: Thank you. Thanks a lot. Good luck with the, with the piece.
0: thanks again to the lightbox team for taking part in the interviews sophie a murder in west cork is now available worldwide on netflix thanks to stephen galvin and film ireland for supporting the podcast and to film composer michael fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music you can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com and thanks to you for listening